Hello and welcome to the Erwin Mitchell podcast. We're here to keep you up to date with the legal and financial news that matters to you. I'm Naomi Finlay and today we're going to look at the importance of well-being in women's sport and in particular physical well-being and mental well-being. I'll be joined today by my Erwin Mitchell colleague and medical negligence expert Chloe Morgan who when she's not working in law can be found playing in goal for Crystal Palace. Welcome Chloe. Cheers, thank you. Thanks for having me. And I'm also delighted to welcome some very special guests, Leanne Infante and Abby Ward of Top Flight Rugby Team, Bristol Bears Women, and Dave Ward, who's their head coach. It's a pleasure to have you all on. Thanks for having us. Yeah, great to be here. Welcome. So today we've come together to talk about well-being in women's sport. It's a topic that's hit the headlines over the last year, with several high-profile athletes opening up about their experiences. For example, last year we saw American gold medalist gymnast Simone Biles withdraw from two Olympic finals, citing mental well-being as the reason. So I want to talk about how well-being is being managed in women's sport. How does that compare with men's sport and what more could be done? Listen in as we get to the bottom of these important questions. So I thought we'd start off by looking at physical well-being. And when you think about physical well-being, you think about things like injury management, prevention, nutrition, sleep. But I'm really interested to hear about your experiences in these areas as professional athletes. For example, do you have access to physios or doctors? Do you feel supported when you need to take time out because of injury? You guys are the experts. You're going to know much more about this than I will. So, Chloe, perhaps you can um, start us off with with your experiences and, and how Crystal Palace is supporting the players in that respect? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, women's football has been obviously been on quite a big journey for the past few years. And obviously with the increased attention that we've got, it's sort of gone from a situation where there was a, a lack of resources to now getting more attention, more funding, more investment, which I think has allowed clubs to sort of put in place some of the things that, you know, really matter to the athletes. So in terms of kind of you know, injury prevention, we do lots of strength and conditioning to work on certain areas that, you know, just to prevent ankle injuries or for me, sort of more upper body injuries and working on um, sort of position specific um, stuff as well. So for me, it's more explosive power rather than, um, you know, some of the strikers I work with is obviously speed and agility. So, yeah, I think it's definitely increased in the past few years for sure. We get sort of um, dietitian advice now uh, as well as the sort of strength and conditioning stuff. Yeah, it's, um, it's definitely improved. I think there's always room for improvement for sure but it's something that's definitely been a focus in in palace now for, for the couple of years that, that i've been there and i think it's difficult as well you know i think working a full-time job as well sometimes it's quite difficult to get in the, the kind of recovery that, that you really need because obviously the recovery that i'm doing is at, at my desk um working with, with clients throughout the day so it can be quite difficult to, to juggle and, and obviously when you have the rest days then you kind of I, well, I, I spend that using it you know seeing family seeing friends seeing um, my partner as well so it's quite difficult sometimes just to get in those extra hours of sleep and um, you know get the right nutrition down you sometimes when you're juggling juggling so much but yeah the position's got better for sure yeah that's it's really interesting that you say that you've noticed a change recently Leanne Abby and Dave I don't know is, is that your experience at Bristol yeah definitely I think you know as as Chloe said the journey that women's sport is going on the women's football and women's rugby with us in terms of the investments and the facilities and the time that's going into it is really really key and you can see that in terms of the investment in physical performance and physical health I think the the change which I'm starting to see which is really nice is actually not being so reactive it's about 
thinking about the little percentages and how you can improve your performance and what we can do before any problems arrive. So previously with injuries, it would almost be like you'd be training, playing, training, playing, you'd get injured and then they'd say, okay, now what can we do? Whereas now it's like, we don't want to get to that point. So instead of rehab, let's do prehab, let's strengthen your bodies up beforehand. Let's give you the recovery beforehand so that actually then when it comes to the day of training or playing, it's all about performance and you kind of give it all the stepping stones and everything that you need to, to to succeed on that on that day. Yeah, it's just taking that step closer to professionalism, isn't it? Like we like um, Chloe and Abby have said, the strength and conditioning work is amazing that we have both here at Bristol and at England, and everyone works a little bit differently, and that's also a really good thing. So we train here with Bristol with our SSC and our physios, and they might prefer to do things one way, and then we go into England training in England camp, and actually we get that slight different exposure, and we train slightly differently, and it's just our bodies adapting to that and being able to to manipulate certain movements just in that slightly different way um, but it's definitely a massive step forward I've had a couple of operations previously and to be able to go through the same process but with different physios and see how they all work and learning more about your own body and what works for you as well I think is really important and you only get that with time and working with different people around you it's, it's really good and just just to add to what Leanne said as well I think it's it's definitely increasing in terms of the support that we have but it's nice to see the amount of studies and the amount of time that is now going into women's sport. I think previously we've had a lot of, you know, studies and research that was applied to men's sport, just applied to women. So this is how the men have done it. This is what suits their needs. And it would just be completely applied to us. Whereas now I think there's, you know, increased education and awareness that we work a little bit differently. Our bodies react a little bit differently. So now we can work towards really tailoring performance and recovery and nutrition for our female bodies and yeah I think that's a really nice stepping stone too. Yeah and I think the one of the main things at Bristol is the infrastructure in place in terms of if the men have got access to it the women have got access to it as well and that is a huge performance benefit that we're seeing already this season and it's very much what Pat Lamb the men's director of rugby is keen to sort of instill within the one club mentality it's not lip service that oh look we've got a women's team let's hope for the best he's like no we've got a women's team um we've got one of the best nutritionists in the uk he's going to work across both sides we've got some of the best uh, facilities in the uk let's have the women have access to it as well full time which is a massive sort of um, positive but also something that is now in place and can only again get better it is we're never going to take a backward step from this which is which is huge, not only for, for rugby, but for sport in general. Yeah, and I think from the sounds of it, that's quite unique to, to Bristol, giving those same opportunities to both men and women. I don't know, Davis, obviously you were a former professional rugby player yourself. If you notice any differences in, in what women maybe used to receive in terms of support um, compared to the men's game and, and whether there's been significant movements forward in that respect, or, and also what more you think needs to be done. Yeah, I just think um, that I think we're in a very privileged position at Bristol, although I hate saying that because actually it's just exactly what should happen. But the men and the women all train at the same facility. We all use it together and we all work together. And there's lots of crossover within that. Certainly coming from, you know, uh, playing professional rugby uh, before, there certainly wasn't that crossover. I think a lot of the men's teams are building high performance centres with an afterthought to the women. When actually, if you're building a high performance centre now within the last couple of years, 
or looking to build one, you should be planning, you know, for women, women's change rooms, women's facilities, all the stuff that is quite an easy fix in terms of making sure it's available for the for the women to have when you arrive. But actually, if it's done as an afterthought, everyone sees it and everyone understands that. And I think that we're taking massive strides, but obviously there is still a way to go, you know, especially within rugby. I, I think, as I said, at Bristol, we're, we're really lucky, but we're also, you know, we, we worked pretty hard to get in this situation. And as I said, we just keep looking forward now. Yeah, and I, I, something else which is kind of building on what you've, what you've all said is that it's, it's great to see um, men and women being provided with the same support, same opportunities, same advice. Okay, we do this for the men, um, let's also do it for the women. Or do you think it's being tailored to the, the needs of women? Which I, th- I think there's a slight difference in, in that. Um, I'd, I'd say um, certainly in rugby, it's being tailored more towards the women. We're defining professionalism in a different way because I think women want to have uh, potentially careers a bit earlier or later and also for family planning. It's crucial for, for women to have the ability to play sport but also have a family and then also come back to sport. So I think the way that professionalism is defined in both sports is different. And I think that the, the steps being taken in women's sport is, is brilliant to do that. So you could have a professional rugby player who's a full-time in every day, four times a week. But you could also have a professional rugby player that might be in twice or three times a week, but they're very much still professional. And again, that's that's where the sport's certainly looking to go. I, I know, obviously, within rugby, and you see it already uh, happening in football. I think probably it's just about the consistency of, of this happening, of people, some programmes tailoring it, some, some programmes not tailoring it up at all. And I think that's where us as Bristol Bears, we can, I think, lead the way. And all we can do is hope and show and give examples of, to the other programmes of how they can do that. And I think that's as well where me and Leanne, as, as England players, we've got a fully funded professional programme with England. We want to see that other countries doing that now. And it's great that Wales have introduced some full-time um, contracts. But actually, what can we do at the forefront of it to push the other nations at other clubs to start stepping up and providing for, for their athletes too. I think um, sort of just jumping on, on the back of that, I think is, I mean, it's fantastic to hear what, you know, I don't really get much of an insight into um, women's rugby at all. So it's been fantastic to hear, you know, the kind of setup that, that you have at, at Bristol Bears is, is phenomenal. So I think, you know, like you were saying, I think it is consistency and, and in women's football, there, there is no consistency. I think with the league that I'm in in particular and the championship, I mean, we have some, about half the league is part-time and half the league is, is full-time and have, have a professional setup. But then you have clubs such as Liverpool, who you think, you know, with the big Premier League back in, and like you were saying about the high-performance centres have completely admitted to, you know, include the women in that provision. And that obviously caused quite quite a big scandal. So even though the money and investment and the name is there in some of these clubs, that still doesn't translate actually into, you know, providing um equality of resources and, and the thing is i think what's most disappointing is that the resources are already there they're just not being shared and it's i think it's even more difficult with some of the other teams in the championship so i don't know if you've seen them um, commentary women uh were recently just about to go into liquidation they didn't have enough funds and they were pulled out of liquidation at, at the last minute but they're a club that again have struggled to kind of get the resources and access to, to facilities and, and that's resulted in them obviously you know, forfeiting points and, and, you know, now dropping off the end of uh, end of the league, really. So, you know, and even in my own experiences, even, you know, before I was at Palace, I was playing at Spurs and, you know, I was shocked sometimes by the fact that we'd, we didn't have access to the same facilities. We were told that we couldn't use the same car park even. You know, we were kind of struggling to, to get seen for serious injuries. We were told we'd have to go to the NHS, but you'd see male players 
you know, being told that they could have access to private healthcare and private scans and things like that. So, and I mean, that was a position two or three years ago. I don't know how much has changed behind the scenes now, but even though the backing of these big clubs is still there, you still find that actually, you know, on the ground, it's it's not always um it's not always as, as happy as it it's made out to be on social media sometimes. That's really interesting, Chloe. Thank you for sharing your your insights, Dave. Something that you man you mentioned um, just now was was family planning. And I'm really interested to talk about this. Um, I know it, it's quite a personal topic, but and it's not necessarily a topic that's unique to women's sport or even sport in general. Um, but it is something that, that strikes me as being as heightened importance in women's sport. Um, and that's um, because, well, speaking very generally, a women's peak fertility tends to coincide with their peak sporting career. I know we've seen some positive changes in this respect and we are seeing more athletes coming back after having children um, like Helen Glover and Jessica Ennis-Hill and we even saw the the Olympic cyclist Eleanor Barker she won a silver medal at Tokyo last year and then she announced after the event that she was actually pregnant at the time um, which is all amazing but I, I'm really interested to hear if you are open to sharing about your experiences as professional athletes and whether family planning is something that you've thought about, whether it's something that is talked about at your clubs. Do you feel that it's an additional pressure on, on women compared to men? I'd say definitely with um, the introduction of professional contracts, it's become a lot more of a conversation topic. And again, we speak about nations and programmes that are leading at the forefront of areas like this. And I think, you know, we could look at New Zealand and Australia in, in rugby union that have really gone out there and provided a really good kind of maternity support whole programme around family planning. And I think, you know, that's something that all the other nations, especially if they're going into professional contracts, will look at and be at the forefront because you either are at the forefront and you support your athletes and you support them, not just as players, but as people, or you fall behind. And that's probably not good enough. So I think maybe previously it was a topic that wasn't really discussed wasn't talked about and it seemed to be if you wanted to have a family you would be retiring whereas now hopefully we can see that people are a lot more proactive and like I said it's just about these programs now supporting the full athlete not just the person on the day on the pitch but actually them their ambitions and who's to say that now you can't just either be an athlete or a mother that you can actually do both and I think that's can only help in terms of that person's health. Yeah, just following on from that, like I think um, I've been working with the RFU around the maternity policy and looking into the, the Australian and the New Zealand kind of the way they did it and what, you know, that gold standard is, if that's what you want to call it, and how can we kind of get to that? Not many people, I don't think anyone's really done it in England. I know Emma Croker, um, quite a few years ago, she came back and had her daughter run along with a mascot. Um, and I think that's the only one that I'm aware of um, within my playing day that has done that in an England rugby shirt. There's quite a few people that have done it and have come back recently within our league structure. And I think the RFU are working really hard um, as the Alliance Premier 15s, especially we've got what we call a minimum standard. And that's something they're really looking to drive into our, our structure around 
you know, our physios, if they're not qualified pre and postnatal, okay, well, what access do they have and how can we bring that into the minimum minimum standards that if they've got a player on a contract within their squad um, that is pregnant or is looking to plan that way, how can they support them? And as Abby said, it's something that hasn't necessarily been spoken about recent, uh, previously, sorry, but in the recent years, it's something that they are looking to do and they are planning and that's coming from the clubs and the country. And, um, you know, it might be a couple of years behind if you're looking at the Australia and New Zealand contracts, but actually how can we better that and how can we make sure that, like Abby said, we're supported on and off the field as people, not just players? Yeah, I suppose um, just from the club perspective, it's been a massive mind, mind, uh, sorry, yeah, shift in mindset in terms of actually writing it into contracts um, and making sure that we support. Uh, I think the view as well has changed. You know, obviously watching Shelly Ann Fraser Price run a PB after she's had her son was pretty incredible. I think you know Alison Felix, Serena Williams. You see all these athletes after having families performing at a higher level. Which you know is, is obviously is great. That's not kind of what, why they're doing it, but it's an added bonus. And I think the view on that has actually changed a lot. So from a club perspective, yeah, we we just look to support as much as we can. And like Leanne says, have those things in place already, rather than oh, someone's got pregnant within our squad. What do we do now? Um, and I think for for the girls to have that support and know that things in place, it also gives them that confidence and that security that they can go out and, and have a family and then if they want to return to rugby, which hopefully they do, uh, we can support them. And if they don't want to return to rugby, we can also support them in that way as well. I think it's all it's all really positive that these changes are being made. And um, it's, it's similar to what you were saying, Abby, about the injury is starting to look like it's more proactive rather than reactive, um, which is all positive things. So, Chloe, I'd be really interested to hear your perspective too, because obviously it's only recently in the news about the um, Women's Super League changing their maternity policies. I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that. Yeah, so it's. Um, I think it's been a long time coming, really. I mean, the FA contracts, I mean, I've got issues with it anyway, because it's quite outdated and I think it needs to be um, revised to kind of reflect the current position. But I mean, one of the things that has been missing from it for, for all this time is, is the maternity leave. And I think a part of me just feels like it's madness that we're sort of sitting in 2022 and we're, we're just getting what we're entitled to in any other form of employment. But here we are, and it's a positive change. Obviously, I think the PFA have been quite integral in uh, trying to push the conversation forward. And now that is included or will be included as standard in the new contracts for, for the upcoming season. I think the only difficulty I, I kind of see is, is when the, the maternity leave actually starts. So obviously with a normal kind of desk job, you'd be looking at maternity leave starting maybe a, a couple of weeks before your, your due date. But obviously with you know the sport that we do, it's very, it's very sort of, it's very contact um it's obviously not safe um to be involved in sort of such a high level of contact sport um so it would be sort of interesting to see when it is that, that female athletes can actually take their maternity leave and how long after the baby is born will they then have or continue to have that that protection but i know sort of prior to the this provision now being introduced a lot of my you know friends and colleagues have always thought that you know, they're going to hold off on on, fam- on having a family until they're ready to, to really give up their careers because that's just what the situation has been. So I think there's always been that sense of, OK, well, if I want a baby, I'm going to play for another couple of years and then and then have a baby and, and retire at the same time. But it'll be interesting to see now sort of what starts to happen in, in terms of, you know, female athletes feeling empowered to have a baby and then have the choice to then come back to to play in um, playing full time sport again. Yeah, and all the sort of provision and, and like like you guys were saying, the support that, that is required to you know get you back into um, you know the high performance level that, that you're at before after your body's obviously been through such a a big um, a big change. So it's um, it's sort of a wait and see and um, to see what what some of the clubs are going to do in terms of their 
um, their provisions of the support for athletes after pre and also post post birth. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point you make about when will the maternity leave starts. Yeah, so it's kind of one of those stories that hits the headlines and then you look into the detail and think actually how's this going to work in, in practice? Is it as good as it sounds on paper? So yes, I think I think the rights wait and see. And another topic I, I wanted to touch on was menstrual cycles because it's something that's not spoken about very much. It's a bit of a taboo subject even these days in 2022. But I know that there's been been some research done, and not enough research in my opinion, but there has been some research done about the impact of menstrual cycles on female athletes and particularly on injuries and whether it makes uh, women more prone to injuries during that uh, cycle. I don't know if um, Dave, you've got any experience of this and how this is, whether it's looked at at all at, at Bristol, uh, and, and if so, how it's looked at? Yeah, I suppose um, for us, we just, uh, again, at the beginning, unfortunately, like Chloe said, we're 2022, we've just started to collect all the data from this. Um, we've seen some significant, um, what we'd say, correlations in terms of uh, menstrual cycle stages and injuries, um, certainly with ACL injuries. And again, we're probably too early to start making big claims on it, but we're certainly at a stage where we can look to that information and help us in the future. I mean, you know, there's obviously been a few studies in terms of 1500 meter runners that can run up to 10 seconds slower in exactly the same physical preparation phase uh, on different days of their menstrual cycle. So, which is huge, you know, running a 406 to a 416 is massive for a 1500 meter runner. For those um, studies to be going on is fantastic. But again, of the studies being taken place uh, in athletes at the moment, about 4% are done on women. So you start thinking about that and it's pretty scary um, considering that it's 50-50 within the population. And actually, we've got probably enough studies on men to be going on with. So for the studies to continue and for actually people to start bringing, you know, menstrual cycle and not also not being in negative. People have won golds uh, on, you know, their worst day in, in inverted commas on their menstrual cycle. So it's just understanding it a little bit more. Um, and I, I think everyone just getting to grips with it. I think our strength and conditioning boys have been doing like a really good job around that. So we fill out a questionnaire every morning around like how we're feeling body wise, physical preparation. And within that is the menstrual cycle. So uh, we have the option to fill out our details of how we're feeling and, you know, what impacts that we feel wherever we are within our cycle. And I know not me personally, but I know some of the girls do struggle with it and have had those individual conversations if they aren't feeling great. And then their training has been altered for that reason reason so it's definitely something that like Dave said we're probably at the start of but I've seen it here and I've heard stories here from Bristol from the other players that actually that's massively benefited them by just opening that conversation channel and then they're feeling more confident coming into training knowing that they're probably not feeling their best or they might not train their best because their coordination goes all out or you know whatever their um, symptoms are but they're actually feeling confident enough to speak about it to the guys there's a little bit of understanding from them they can tailor their strength conditioning and then actually they can train to the best that they can on that week so um, it's definitely conversations that are open and that are being had kind of weekly here. It's really good to hear about that so, and I think it'd be great to see you know training and, and club uh, the support that clubs are providing being tailored towards these sort of things but one thing that you obviously at the moment you can't change or you don't have any control over as clubs and athletes is 
the dates of your key competitions and key events. So it would be interesting to see what, what clubs are planning to do around that, if they're planning to do anything. And even if they can do anything, will they need to be liaising with governing bodies um, in the even wider to look at timetabling? But, but how would you even go about doing that? I feel like that's a that's probably something that's actually been picked up and which is quite good. So, for example, from an England perspective, they've already looked at and they've gone through everyone's symptoms, um, severity, um, like tracking it. And they said, right, OK, what are the different things that we can put in place to help you? And actually, can we trial these over certain games? Can we trial them over the autumn games? Can we trial it over the Six Nations? Can we look at things in your premiership games? Um, because the big one for us this year is the World Cup. So actually, can we look at different solutions or different ways that we can alter your training to ensure that if you are, you know, having your menstrual cycle at a certain point in the World Cup, that you're absolutely fine and you're covered and they can help you as much as possible. So they are um, proactively looking at different solutions, whether that's different types of like hormone contraception or just different things to help you feel comfortable. If that's a hot water bottle or if that's um, altering your training, if that is nutrition, so many different little bits and pieces that they can put in place and they're definitely being proactive and like you said, sometimes with sport on a four-year basis or on a one-year basis, it can come down to one event and if that happens to coincide, actually you don't have to worry about it because you've got different things in place to help you. It's so interesting to hear about that because that's something that you just don't see talking about on the news. Do you? you hear about all these kind of headline hitting stories and, and menstrual cycles? It sounds like some great work's being done and just no one hears about it. Chloe, I don't know if if you've got any thoughts about what's being done in football, if anything, um, and, and what more could be done. Yeah, I think it's um, it's definitely a conversation that's progressed in the last couple of years. I mean, we do something quite quite similar to the Bristol Bears in the sense of Every morning when we've got training, we fill in a questionnaire sort of saying how we are, how we're doing, um, if we're expecting our period, if we're on, um, and sort of like, you know, generally how's your sleeping and stuff like that. Because obviously it has such a massive impact on on how you are during the day. And I think, you know, just from personal experience, I know that when I'm coming on, um, I feel a lot more vulnerable. Um, and as a goalkeeper, it can be quite problematic that you don't want balls pelted at you at 70 miles an hour when you're feeling a bit vulnerable and a bit heavy and you don't feel like you can dive because you just feel massive and frumpy and, Yes, I think there's more understanding around it now. And I think it's great the conversations are now happening. So I think with a lot of elite teams or a lot of elite teams that I've worked with, the, the management, the strength and conditioning staff, they're all men. So I think it's been a massive education um, really for sort of male training staff to kind of get on board with it not being such a taboo subject. And now we talk about it quite openly. And, you know, because the coaches can see, you know, 50% of the team are on today, um, you know, we could acknowledge that, OK, if we're all having a bit of a, a bit of a crap session and we're not sort of on the same page, that there might be things sort of, you know, underlying that, that are contributing to that. We can have a bit of a laugh and a joke about it. So I think it's about just opening up that conversation and feeling more comfortable saying, yeah, I'm having a having a crap sesh. Uh, yeah, it's probably just me having a crap one. But also, yeah, I'm on my period. And there might be some some other factors at play here. But, you know, I, I, it'd be great to kind of see more and more studies being done on this, because I think even just in terms of sort of, you know, the timings of the month, but also, you know, specific positions that you play so you know the way that my period affects me as a goalkeeper is probably completely different to how it will affect someone else on the team and also how the teams then go about coping with you know 22 players who are all on their cycles at different times because you never have you know all, it's very rare that you have the entire squad either on or off their periods it's normally one or two or three or, or whatever it is so you know trying to coordinate a session that 
sort of you can adapt it to you know everyone's end of 22 women's individual needs so it's um it's no mean feat yeah it's a it's a difficult task and i'm glad that it's not my job <laughs> yeah i think it's interesting what you say chloe about kind of the, the conversations are happening more so i think a lot of this well a lot of, of any change that if you want to make change it's a lot about education um and, and just talking about it more and gaining awareness and then that's what's going to lead to policy changes at the end of the day but something else that i links on to what you were saying about how you feel personally on your menstrual cycle um, it can affect your physical and your mental well-being so I'd quite like to touch on mental well-being and what's being done on that in that respect it's as I said at the beginning of the podcast it's something that's been hitting the headlines in the in recent years with you know athletes like Naomi Osaka Emma Raducanu Simone Biles all opening up about their experiences with their mental health and how it affects their performance but not only their performance it affects them as as individuals and um, so I'd be really interested to hear what your experiences are whether it's something that's being talked about more at your clubs. I think it's sort of just jumping into that I think um, where women's football has received so much attention in sort of like the last well the last year year and a half really I think it seems to be the more attention you get I think sometimes your mental health but what I've noticed I think in, in our team it's it becomes more and more difficult to maintain your mental health. I think not only are you dealing with kind of the pressures of being, you know, the performance pressures, the the self analysis, the comparing yourself to teammates, the wanting to do well, the kind of you know, the, the pressure that goes with, with performances, I think you also get that additional critique now from, you know, people who are now watching the sport much more than they used to and it's now available and you're seeing online criticism on, you know, Instagram and Twitter and, and spheres like that. So I think it's probably heightened, I think, the pressure. So I think it has been more difficult to maintain a good level of, of mental health. So I think you are constantly being assessed. And I think that is a degree of, you know, being a professional athlete, you do have to just take on board that that is something that you will face. But I think it's, you know, for me as a, one of the older players, I think I've kind of been there, seen it, done it. And I think I've got a bit more of a, maybe a bit more life experience to be able to kind of separate, you know, and, and put in place things that I do to kind of protect my mental health. But you know, I'm starting to see now, you know, in, in Crystal Palace, I'm, you know, I'm 32, I'm, I'm definitely getting on. But, you know, some of the players I play with are, are now 17 years old and, and they're facing pressures that, you know, I didn't have at 17, 18 years old because no one was really watching us play sort of 10, 12 years ago. And it's, I think it's very important to put in place procedures to protect your younger players sort of education. You know, how do we look at, you know, what happens if something happens on the field? What happens if you're, you know, being bombarded on social media? What happens if the pressure of performing gets too much for you? And I think, you know, we are starting to see a little bit more um, sports psychology start to, to come into play. But I don't I don't think it's enough. No. What about you guys at Bristol? Yeah, I think um, we're in a privileged position in the fact that we play a team sport and from mental health that can do like wonders. You know, we've got so many people around us and at Bristol Bears, the thing that I've loved coming down here for the first year is how tight all the girls are. I mean, Abby and I are 28, 29. We've brought the average age up in our team. 28, 28. <laughs> we've brought the average age up quite a lot in our team. So similar to um, Chloe saying, you know, got 17, 18 year olds are part of the training squad and it, it's all brand new to them. And the only thing we can do is share those experiences that we've had throughout the years and how we have dealt with those situations under high pressure. And I think that's something that we do do really well here. You're always going to get the people on social media that, you know, think they know everything about rugby and want to have their two pence here and there. But I think 
the majority of us rugby players are quite resilient and that's something that we have to be within our sport it's a contact sport you've got to be able to go through that but also just knowing that someone's going to be there whether that's a player or staff member again going back to the questionnaire we fill out that questionnaire and if we don't hit a certain score within that you know, we get a message from the start a member of staff just checking in with us and saying is everything okay I've noticed your scores are a little bit down that might be you know physically or mentally and just checking in with us before we come into training so again that open communication of what can you do everyone will have different coping mechanisms and I've tried numerous things throughout the years everyone talks about um, a little bit of mindfulness or um, meditation a bit of yoga mobility whatever that works for the, that individual and for me that's been a bit of trial and error and I know it's similar to the other girls but again just sharing that experience with the younger girls coming through so that especially if they've got some talent and the pressure's coming on within either our Alliance Premier 15s games, which are being streamed and a lot more people have access to those, or whether they're being pulled up to England camp or Wales camp, just being able to deal with that pressure in the right way and knowing how they can cope with those or who they can go and talk to, I think is really important. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And just like, like Chloe said, you know, sport, performance sport is a high pressure situation and it's about dealing with that. And it's not just on a week-to-week basis it's how that ebbs and flows throughout the season you know from you you can completely change in terms of your your mindset and the pressure one part of the season compared to the next part of the season then that can completely change again so it's about having that set up around you that um that security but also the people that you can go to all the different like you said mindfulnesses or different tools that you can use um to help and i think it's great that it's not so much of a taboo subject anymore like you can see on social media, um, you know, on on TV, like within programs, it's talked about so much. So let's keep that conversation going. Let's see what else we can bring in, what other tools we can start using to help individuals. Because like you said, there's one thing that is for certain that it's with performance sport comes pressure. So it's how do we deal with that? Um, and I think sometimes it's important that we have a bit of perspective that we step outside because when you're playing sport, in that moment under that magnifying glass it can seem like everything you know is coming down to that one moment sometimes you've got to step outside of that and say yes I run around after a ball for a living but there there's a bigger picture there's not just like going back to there's not just me as the athlete there's me as the person there's my wider circle of friends and family and actually sometimes you need to take all that into account it's not just there in that moment that tackle that kick that run or whatever is putting that pressure on you yeah, I think that's really interesting what you, you said there, Abby, because I think in the past there's been a lot of focus on sports psychology, so preparing athletes mentally for competition, and that's been the, the focus of mental well-being. And now, from my perspective as a kind of spectator and um, sports lover, I'm seeing a bit of a, a shift towards, actually, let's look at the well-being of an athlete as a whole, not just so that they're primed for competition, but so that they are mentally well all of the time or as as much of the time as, as possible. Experiences reflect that. Yeah, absolutely. And I often say to, you know, to coaches or to people that there's a lot to be said about a happy person makes a good rugby player or footballer or whatever sport it is. And it's about, you know, you being um, happy or settled within yourself and then that will translate into your work environment or your other environment. And I think just jumping on that, like 
no one can be happy 100% of the time, but also that's okay. So as Abby was saying, like emotions are really high and it might even link into menstrual cycles and how people react to feedback or criticism within work and sport and then actually taking that away. But I think just respecting people's life position, you know, some people might have stresses outside of rugby and they're, they're coming in, they might have had a full day at work and they're coming in and they're getting their training in all done in one evening. And they haven't really stopped to take a breath. And for people like us who, you know, we're here all day, we just given them that the confidence to say it's okay to take a breath or just trying to um, bring them up and appreciate where they are is probably what I'm trying to say, appreciating the position that they're in um, within their life, within their work uni whatever that might be um but just accepting that we're not going to be 100 percent of ourselves all the time but actually what can we give that day it might not be you know the star of the show it might not be 100 percent energy but actually it's really detailed and it's going to be this and that's okay for that day go to sleep recover you come back in the next day or two days later after a rest day um, and it's just how we can maximize that time together i think that that's kind of spot on there really from from my perspective is it's like you could you can't just um like press a button and then you know that that person's worries are going to be banished so it's not um there's not going to be quick fixes but it, it's similar with with physical injuries you wouldn't expect someone to come in with a knee injury and they have a five minute chat with someone and suddenly their injury's gone it's about treating treating the injury over a, a through a process and getting the getting the person back up to as much as possible as, as close as possible to peak fitness mentally and physically i don't know if um kind of as a as a final point if, if anyone's got any thoughts on um particular issues that you think governing bodies need to be aware of or, or commercial organizations should be aware of to provide to provide support to to you as athletes and clubs both from a physical well-being perspective and a mental well-being perspective yeah i mean for, for me I... I mean, uh, Leanne just said that's quite a tough one to answer, and it is because uh, as, a, as a coach, and obviously we're trying to develop skills on the pitch, but we're actually trying to develop mental skills off the pitch as well. We do see it as a skill to be able to control and also help your emotions, but also, like Leanne said, to open up about that, and, th and that's a skill within itself. So, again, it's just for us to put those facilities in place for people to do that, whether it be for the coaches or for a sports psychologist or a mental skills coach. All these avenues that we can provide as a club is only going to help what Abby described as creating those happy rugby players. A happy, healthy rugby player is going to probably be a better rugby player at the end of the day, let's be honest. So, And that's kind of what we want as coaches, and but actually what the athletes want for themselves as well. So as long as we can continue to put those into place, um, I think we're, we're going along the right path. No, I think um, just from um, my perspective, it's sort of, I know it's quite a big one, I think, but in terms of education, so I think obviously I see now, uh, you know, there's a lot more younger players coming up and going straight from, you know, their GCSEs, A-levels, BTECs, whatever it is, into full-time professional sport. And I think, I think like you guys were saying, it was like you can get into a situation where you just think that you, your whole identity is about you being an athlete. And I think having an education, I feel quite fortunate that I've got another role that I can actually remind myself sometimes that it's not just football that defines me. It's not just that performance that I did. It's um, it, And it's having that sort of dual aspect in sort of the education things that the kids are now, you know, missing out on, I think, sometimes and just going into playing full-time sport. I'd like to see a lot more clubs sort of taking a bit more of a, of a front runner in, you know, providing educational development plans, you know, for a life after sport or a life alongside sports. I think if you have that 
something else to fall back on you know you could always at any point I think you know sport a sports career is very fragile you only have to suffer one one injury and it could completely affect you know how your career looks from from that point onwards and I think always having a fallback position or having something else to rely on or some other identity and part of your you know what makes you up as a person I think is always quite quite important so I think more needs to be done really with with clubs especially in, in football from what I've seen and sort of assisting youngsters in in having both aspects and, and making sure that education is is also there alongside their their playing careers. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think it's a, a good point for us to to end today's podcast on. I think it's been a really fascinating discussion. Sounds like there's a lot of positive work going on, but still we're at the beginning of this this journey of improving equality for um, women's sport. But thank you all for, for joining me today and thank you to our listeners. Um, thank you for listening to the Owen Mitchell podcast. Make sure you subscribe to our channel so that you don't miss out on our other wellbeing and sport podcasts which are coming up over the next couple of months. Thank you all.